Hey folks, some quick housekeeping here, and I think this will be the norm for our episodes recorded pre-coronavirus. Two things. First, we got some encouraging feedback about our emergency COVID-19 episode last week. Thank you to all of you who listened. We'd like to keep using this platform to serve our community. So in conjunction with the Missoula Economic Partnership and United Way of Missoula County, our Incentives and Instincts series with Bryce Ward will move to a bi-weekly schedule. We'll be breaking down developments and offering insights on how to make sense of what's happening in the world around you. We'll also be discussing ways you can give and get help. Stay tuned for our next episode in that series next week. One of the things is the the personalization, which, you know, sometimes, you know, students don't like. But I find in my class, you know, to say to students, you know, I, I, I graduated from Stanford High School in Stanford, Montana. I know what it's like to live in a classy town in Montana. My mother was the English teacher. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. This is the finale of our Sea Change series, and we finish where we started with University of Montana Regents Professor of History, Anya Jabour. Anya's new book about the amazing Sofonispa Breckenridge, a woman somewhat lost to history, is fascinating. And in this conversation, we learn more about Breckenridge's important work in the suffrage movement. We're also joined by Professor Beth Hubble, Director of UM's Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Program. We discuss the role and importance of that program and how Sea Change is driving curricular changes here on our campus. I've learned a ton from this series, and it's been an honor to speak with all of these amazing Sea Change contributors. Our series is ending today, but Sea Change is just getting started. And I'm excited for you to learn more about what's happening now and what you can expect in the years to come, right now. Okay, so we're here today with Professor Anya Jabour, Professor Beth Hubble. Ladies, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. So, Anya, it's been almost a year since our first conversation, the inaugural Sea Change episode. Since then, you've had a big milestone in your career, publication of your fourth book, Mm -hmm. Sophonisper Breckenridge, whom we spoke a little bit about in that inaugural episode. But Mm -hmm. this book, uh, when did it hit press? It came out in fall 2019. I think the official release date was in September. And you're somewhat fresh off of a bit of a book tour, right? That's right. I have uh, been giving book talks in uh, Kentucky, which is where Breckenridge was born and grew up, as well as in Chicago, where she spent her adult career as a reformer and educator. And um, and I will actually be returning to both of those places uh, oh, later later this uh, later this semester. So. Very excited to be returning to Hull House, which is the famous settlement house co-founded by Jane Addams, where Breckenridge lived and worked for many years and was a really important part of her trajectory as a social reformer and training. So, yeah, so I've been doing a fair amount of traveling. Indeed. I'm excited to talk about uh, particularly that University of Chicago connection, because that's something we talked about in our first conversation. Beth, you are the director of the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Program. And it's a major and a minor here yes. at the University and of Montana. Certificate. And a graduate certificate. How long have you been in that role? I think I started co-directing in 2000 and 
eight or nine. Okay, and the two of you were co-directors. So you overlapped I, a bit. I yeah, I co-directed with with three different faculty members. When we became, when we got our major and we last changed our name is when I became the sole director. So okay. 2014. Mm-hmm. Yep. Super. Okay. So we're here to sort of bring this sea change series to a close, and we're kind of going to do that right where we started. So we've been building up not only in this series, but uh, you know, kind of on campus with some of the sea change programming toward the centennial of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Anya, as we approach that centennial, kind of put us put us in a little bit of historical context and perspective. What, what sorts of things are you thinking about right now? Sure. Well, uh, both, I would say, at the national level and here on campus, a uh, really big focus, a, not- a notable focus of the commemorations of the centennial of the 19th Amendment has been paying attention to not only the victory that many women won the right to vote with that um, amendment in 1920, but also paying attention to its limitations to the groups of women who were left out, Mm -hmm. um, particularly African-American women and immigrant women, as well as Native American women. And um, so a lot of the focus of the various commemorations of the amendment have really been calling attention to that exclusion or limitation, as well as calling attention to the fact that the 19th Amendment um, was not the end of the road, um, not only for those groups who were excluded from the new rights that it conferred, um, but really for all American women, that the achievement of voting rights, important as it is, um, is only one piece of achieving full and equal citizenship. So the various events that we have planned here on campus, um, which Beth has been organizing, are really um, kind of taking that broader picture of that longer view, looking at the 19th Amendment as one moment in this bigger struggle for full and equal citizenship for everyone. So Beth, tell us about some of the events that we're, we're, uh, we're looking at. Well, when when we first started talking about it, the first thing people think of in in the circles that that we tend to run in is that we are very famous nationally um, because of Jeanette Rankin, yeah, um, who was elected to Congress before the Nineteenth Amendment because Montana had had the right to vote since nineteen fourteen, and so. Um, People thinking, well, we're just going to have everything focused on Rankin, and we're absolutely going to talk about Rankin, who opened debate on the 19th Amendment on mm-hmm. the House floor in Washington, D.C., as the first woman in Congress. But then my idea was that's going to bring in um, an audience, and then we need to be looking at exactly what Anya already said. And our very first event, and this is um, done somewhat intentionally, is that we're going to show a film at the end of February. Um, called For the Rights of All, Ending Jim Crow in Alaska, because when Alaska became a state, well after the 19th Amendment, their constitution explicitly took the vote from Native Alaskans. Yes, they were not enfranchised in the constitution, and then they had to fight for that. Wow. Um, So that was explicitly excluded. They were not given... What's the process of that? Like, just explicit racism? Exactly. Just who who counts as a citizen. Right, And so that's, you know, so wanting to look at that moment in history, but then also today that there are voting rights in in different places around the country that are under threat um, in in North Dakota, 
in the last um, year or so, they are requiring people to have physical addresses mm -hmm. and not P.O. boxes, sure. and that disproportionately affected people who live on reservations. And so those kind of things of saying, okay, we have this, this we have this huge event with this one of the most famous women from that process, from that time period. Let's let's get people in and talk about the groups that are still fighting for some of these rights today. Absolutely. Yeah. When you look at history, and this is a question for both of you, I mean, is it is there any sort of overarching view of progress like is, is progress progress can't be assumed to be constant i mean or or maybe we're regret you're both chuckling at me probably because of my naivete with this question but like you hear the classic like the arc of history bends towards justice quote but mm -hmm. that, that that's more of a belief than a than a truth right one of the things that I, because because sometimes in in the classes that we teach, students can come away with a feeling of just helplessness and despair. Yeah, things were terrible a hundred years ago, and they're terrible today. And so, trying to point out the things that actually have changed, um, and I, I can think of two moments or two examples with that is that I look at my students today and think about when I first taught college students, which would have been in the mid '90s and how much more freedom of gender expression there is today sure. than there was 25 years ago. And I look at that and go, yes, things are changing. And so, and I tell them that. I say, you all are much more comfortable expressing a wider range of, of gender and sexuality than, than, than we were at UM in the 1990s. And I am an alum of the University of Montana. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other one is, this is, a, this is really profound, and you may not even know this, but when we were um, right at the beginning of, of um, the investigations by the Department of Justice at UM, Jackson Katz, who's a very famous anti-violence activist nationally, he came to campus, mm -hmm. and he talked about showing how things have changed, that, that when I first went to college, we were just starting to talk about date rape as a thing, even though... We know throughout time, people t tend to know. He also called out Anya as being an amazing scholar during that talk. It was, it was very, yeah, it was cool. But then to think today, that's an ex that's, that is an accepted idea today. It's not something we're fighting anymore. So within violence prevention to understand that we're, that, so those kind of two things of seeing that within my lifetime, seeing a much more nuanced understanding of gender-based violence, a much more nuanced expression of gender and sexuality. And then also ha I have a child and seeing his generation mm -hmm. of, of middle schoolers that, that is just expanding yeah. to them. And so I, I see progress and I think a lot of the negatives are backlash against that progress. So Sure, so Anya, how does that sit with a more, sort of a more historical view? You know, progress isn't a given, yet Beth's making the case that progress is occurring. Right, well I think um, both of those things are true. Sure. Um, Beth and I have been teaching for roughly the same number of years. I came to UM as an assistant professor in 1995 and um, absolutely agree with her uh, observations about that. I was actually in Washington, D.C. doing research for my biography of Breckenridge when the Supreme Court made the decision making legalizing same-sex marriage, mm. which is another one of those kind of landmark events that one can point to as evidence of progress even though there is also 
plenty of evidence of regression, as in the disfranchisement of many Native voters in North Dakota that Beth was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that is really important in my new book is this theme of what Breckenridge herself called passionate patience. Okay. So Breckenridge worked on a wide variety of fronts to promote social justice. She uh, attempted to uh, promote legislation that provided maximum hours and minimum wages, first for women workers and ultimately for all working Americans. She uh, advocated uh, for a child labor amendment that would um, make it illegal uh, to hire minors um, to engage in industrial labor. She advocated women's suffrage. She advocated for social welfare programs. She was an anti-lynching activist as well. She also advocated for a national health care program. So, um, and she saw some progress, but it was always, it was very difficult process um, to achieve that progress. And often the progress was partial, right? And then it constantly had to be defended. And sometimes the progress would be rolled back. Mm -hmm. Um, So, To give just one example, um, there was an initial uh, federal law prohibiting child labor in 1918, um, and then it was overruled by the Supreme Court. Um, And then child labor um, legislation was not enacted until um, 1938 with the Fair Labor Standards Act. So, and then other things that she worked for uh, were never achieved in her lifetime, and in fact still have not been achieved, um, like having a, you know, a completed uh, federal law to make it a federal crime to uh, target uh, people of color for violence um, based on their based on their race. So so um, one of the things that really stands out to me in Breckenridge's career is that she had um, she had lots of failures, she had lots of setbacks, she had lots of progress, but the progress was partial, um, or the thing that she achieved was rolled back, like the first federal health care program in the 1920s um, was a program just for uh, poor um, mothers and their children in rural areas, but it was rolled back in 1920, you know, after less than 10 years of existence. And so she had to keep coming back to it and coming back right, to it and coming right. back to it. Persistence. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, so that she had to be very patient. She had to be, she had to accept partial victories. She had to be persistent in the face of obstacles and setbacks. And as she said, what that required was passionate patience. So that at the same time, you had to be patient and recognize that change took time. Um, but you also had to be passionate about it, and that passion would keep you going even through the really hard times. Absolutely. You wonder if like that kind of perspective could survive in a media environment like we have now. <laughs> right. I, I just, I, yeah, that's maybe a question for another day. <laughs> but as you're, as you're laying that out there, Anya, it occurs to me, like one of the things that stands out in, in the, the front matter of your book is that uh, Breckenridge was in many ways an unfamiliar character, kind of lost to history in many ways. Yes. Um, how did she end up on your radar screen, and why did she become an interest? I mean, you've dedicated a significant amount of your professional attention to her history and yes. articulating it. Why? Yes, yes. It's been a 10-year project, so yeah. yes, it's not an in- insignificant amount of time. Speaking of passionate patients, so so I 
actually kind of stumbled across Breckenridge by accident, uh, even though I, I, I love biography and I love case studies and, and sort of individual stories as, as a window into a bigger time period or bigger transformations, and that's how I try to use her in the book. I didn't actually set out looking for her or indeed looking for a, a subject for a biography. I was working on a project on school teachers in the 19th century South. Okay. And as part of that initial research, I read uh, a very brief biographical profile of this person, Sophie Nisbet Breckenridge, who uh, had been one of the earliest women to pursue graduate study at the University of Chicago. Right. And she... was the first PhD and JD and... and yeah, yeah, yeah. She was um, the first to earn her um, Juris Doctorate in Law from Chicago in 1904. And before that, she earned a master's degree and a PhD in political science and political economy. But that's a lot of degrees. It's a lot of degrees. I mean, there's a lot of degrees in this room, but that's a lot of degrees. <laughs> oh, it's really a lot of degrees. But... And actually, this is a good example of progress. Um, she couldn't get a job um, teaching in any of her right. areas of specialty, even though she graduated at the top of her class. I mean, she didn't just at a top university. At a top university, yes. And um, and she responded to that discrimination by pioneering new fields. Hmm. So um, she initially took a job working in the Department of Household Administration, which does not sound very promising, but um, in that context, in 1905, she offered the very first women's studies course in the nation. It was called the Legal and Economic Status of Women. Okay. And then teaching that course sort of brought her into contact with the Second City's social reform circles, um, and uh, including the Jane Addams and others affiliated with Hull House, and she became very interested in what she called social legislation, so using the law to promote social justice, and uh, as well as uh, providing social services. And that ultimately led her to basically create <laughs> um, the new field of social work and to establish at the University of Chicago the School of Social Service Administration, which was the first graduate program in social work in affiliated with the university in the United States. So she couldn't really find a job, so right. she ended up creating one. Exactly. For herself. Exactly. And that was sort of my that was what got me intrigued was yeah. I was like who is this woman, right? Like she did all, she's so accomplished and then she keeps running into these barriers and the way that she deals with that is to like create new opportunities right. uh, for herself um, and for others. And so that was really the hook for me is that I wanted to know more about her. So in some ways, she started a lineage that now lives in, in your program, Beth. Well, absolutely. And as, as you were talking, I was thinking, I mean, that's um, in some ways where, where hasn't progress been made is thinking on, on some level still back in the early days of women's studies of how do we continue to bring these little known women and other marginalized people from history to a broader audience because we have 
it's like we have token women yeah. throughout mm-hmm. history, and we just keep teaching. Well, most students have heard of Susan B. Anthony. Most students right, have right. heard of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Yeah, it's the same short list it's from grade exactly, school. Exactly, yeah. and and a shocking number, even from Montana, have not heard of Jeanette Rankin, or they know they've heard of her, and they're not sure why. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look, yeah, and so that's that's for me what I just kind of see. I teach a 100-level um, kind of great books by women class every every fall. And, you know, there are only one or two authors in the entire class that, that most of the students have heard of. I mean, and is, is that kind of the genesis of women's studies absolutely. As, as a field, is to, to sort of document and elevate women in history? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I even think about, um, as, as we discussed before you started recording, that I'm a, a French medievalist by training. Um, and Medieval masculinity, right? Well, that's my dissertation was on representations of masculinity, and, I, and I've since but put a lot of focus on the the very few women authors we know of from the Middle Ages, uh-huh. and I and and um, the first professional woman author in in Europe was a woman named Christine de Pizan, and she died around the year fourteen twenty nine, and um, she was only rediscovered. Really, I mean, her books were there, but no one was writing about her. No one was talking about her until, uh-huh. and actually, a French professor from here retired did her dissertation on Christine de Pizan in the 1970s as part of the first women's studies movement. And so here's a 15th century woman wow. author, first professional woman author paid to write, mm-hmm. and no one had written almost anything about her since she died. Five hundred years, yeah, yeah. And, and until Maureen Kernow did her dissertation at Vanderbilt in the 70s on, on her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so let's do a little bit of accelerated history there, in the sense that you know, I su- it starts as this 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 way of documenting and elevating women in history. Yeah. What what are some of the ideals of the program and the curriculum now? Well, we we are very much focused on intersectionality. We partner. Um, let's let's with, define that okay. first, because a lot of people hear that term. It's a bit of a hot button term for it some. It is absolutely. What does it mean? Um, so it means to me that I can't come in here and say, "Well, as a woman, I think this," because I only know what it's like to be a white, straight, middle okay. class, okay. highly educated. So we have to think about race. We have to think about class. We have to think about the ways that those things intersect. All those identities intersect with each other to see how we see ourselves and how the world treats us. Okay. And so, um, you know, women's studies, I mean, it's one of the reasons to expand the name out to gender and then to sexuality, but also to be incorporated more and more women of color, people who are non-binary, things like that, into those conversations around gender, sexuality, race, class. And so for me, that's been my focus for the last um, little bit there with some of the changes going on, on on campus. I took it upon myself to teach a Caribbean and African women authors class uh, mm. a year ago, which is not my, I took one class in grad school and read real fast. Um, but then that inspired me teaching a, a medieval and early modern women's authors class this semester. Um, and I've taught this class a bunch of times. But it's completely new now because I'm including um, several African women. I'm including some Native American writings from the time of discovery. So looking at how can we 
now I have this place, I have this group of students. I'm not going to talk about Christine de Pizan, who they still haven't necessarily heard of, but she's another rich white woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's use that time to bring in, I found this amazing Ethiopian nun from the 17th century who fought the Jesuits to keep an Ethiopian Christianity and not go with a Roman Catholic Christianity. There's a lot of stuff intersecting right there. I know, exactly. I found it and it it just blew my mind because I'd never heard of her and I'm a medievalist. And yeah. I do, yeah. And so to sh- now my students this semester get to read the biography of this 17th century Ethiopian woman. Sign me up. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. So yeah. <laughs> as you're saying, you know, as, as this concept of intersectionality, I, I won't say emerges because it's always been a thing, but like maybe we're sort of um, more conscious of it and aware of it and more explicit about it now. How does that kind of translate to the work of an historian when you're sort of interpreting historical documents that were written from probably a rich white male perspective in most cases? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So so for historians, it's all about the documents, right? Okay. And so um, one, of the, one of the challenges with that is that uh, people who were not well-to-do, people who were not white, people who were not educated, of course, tended to leave less written records right. of their lives, which makes it um, more challenging um, to investigate uh, their experiences and their attitudes. Um, it's not impossible, but it's, you know, it's definitely more challenging. Um, the, the book that I wrote about Breckenridge is about a person who was white. Um, she was, she was middle class ish. Um, sure. Although she uh, was self supporting, and so she wasn't as uh, financially comfortable as um, she might have been. Um, she was obviously highly educated, mm-hmm. um, but you know she did not belong to the same social categories as the people that she dedicated her life to helping. I mean, so she was very interested, uh, for instance, in. Uh, promoting the welfare of immigrants, um, but she herself, of course, was not an immigrant, right? right? And so um, and so, even though people haven't heard of Breckenridge, in a way, she's, you know, she is another, you know, well-to-do white woman. Um, she wasn't straight, but, <laughs> uh, but in other ways, um, she, um, you know, she came from a position of privilege. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hey, this is Ryan Tutel and Coulter Nuanas from ESPN Missoula, and you're listening to A A New New Angle. However, one of the things that drew me to this project in the first place is that as a researcher who was interested in social inequality and in the sources of social inequality, she conducted a lot of studies of people who came from a different background. So she conducted these very detailed studies of immigrants and very detailed studies of in the 1930s of people who showed up in what was called the renter's court, which was a special courtroom for people who faced immediate eviction because they couldn't pay their rent. Right. Um, yeah, when you're saying studies, I mean, like economic studies? Like she's so, trained as an economist, right? Like what Among is, other things, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, she had these sort of very detailed, um, she called them schedules, um, but they're basically questionnaires. So the questionnaires will record the, you know, the, the people's names and ages and um, 
ethnic background or nationality, their occupation, mm -hmm. um, if any. We'll also record if they have any um, physical or sensory disabilities, um, and then ask them a series of questions. And the questions depend on the particular study. Like she had a study of citizenship that asked them questions about their ability to speak, uh, read, and write in English, okay. um, whether or not they'd been able to become naturalized citizens, whether or not they'd been able to successfully apply for financial assistance, um, and, uh, and, and then just some kind of like freeform stuff. Anyway, and so that's, so a lot of that material ended up being material that I wasn't able to include in the book mm -hmm. because it would have been, you know, three times as long right, as it right. is. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that I would like to do is go back to those materials and, you know, kind of look at the same time period, but instead of looking at it from Breckenridge's perspective, look at it more from the perspective of the people who she studied and for whom, therefore, we have records, even for those who, in fact, could not read or write or even, in some cases, speak English. Sure. And I don't have Beth's facility with languages, so I kind of need the materials to be it Seems like a co-authorship in, in the works Well, here. only if they did it in French or the super helpful old French or Latin. Old that French. That would be, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that would be. But I'm thinking, I mean, one of the things that people ask me is, is then I'm teaching a class with authors whose identity I do not share and things like that and how to negotiate that. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and students can be troubled by that. Um, and, you know, on, on, on one hand, in Montana, we are limited in terms of diversity mm -hmm. um, and you know, something that hopefully sea change is going to help us fix on, on many levels sure. in terms of representation. Um, but the other side that, that, that I always argue back, um, although I completely acknowledge all the time, yes, it, there, we can talk about a problematic of me teaching um, these authors, is that in my privileged position, you know, when I, when I really want to enforce it, I'll say, I think you can call me Dr. Hubble, <laughs> um, you know, when at that level of, of, of privilege that, that that confers, I'm going to open doors to groups of people and to students that marginalized people can't always do because they lack that, that privilege. And so if, if me being invited to speak to a group of people opens the door, um, how can I then do it and bring other people with me to, to, to share those, those, to share experiences that, that may not get out there in other ways? Yeah, how do you yeah. illuminate some of those perspectives with, you know, I think of our students here, um, you know, oftentimes very hardworking, come from good families, um, good work ethic, so forth, but kind of green. Yeah. And how do you sort of, I mean, your, your program's got to open, I mean, the whole, like we said before, the whole concept of intersectionality. I wonder, yeah. like, the average freshman that walks onto this campus, do they even know what that is? And how do you illuminate it without antagonizing them? Well, I, I, I don't know, because that might be I'm a strong, mostly, antagonizing might be a strong word, but oh, you, no, you get my point. Oh, no, no, we, we, we both know that we've made people not happy over, over the years. Um, and I tend to teach, um, people who've chosen to be in a women's gender and sexuality mm -hmm. studies class. Right, they self-select so, into your discipline. Yes, and so we have that. But but one of the things is the the personalization, which, you know, sometimes, you know, students don't like. But I find in my class, you know, to say to students, you know, I, I, I graduated from Stanford High School in Stanford, Montana. Um, 
I, I know what it's like to live in a class C town yeah. in Montana. Yeah. My mother was the English teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was the attorney, <laughs> you know, which is a social class issue as well. But I'm from a place that kids from Montana and other rural places can identify with. And so kind of connecting on the trying to connect on that level um, and you know, with students who do come, you know, students who who identify as LGBTIQ plus and things like that, acknowledging, you know, as well, trying to forward those voices um, in ways too to make students feel welcome in a classroom where in other classrooms they may never feel at home. So it's kind of trying to that balance of, but because I absolutely agree with, you know, the challenging of them but in a way that lets them think about it. And, and yeah, for me, the, the, the most successful things I've seen is when, when they can go, oh, here's someone from Montana, um, and if she's teaching this, it, can it be as wacky as I think it is? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, you build that kind of common connection yeah. and use that as a way to challenge their worldview yeah. or, or, or make them feel less comfortable or present yeah. them with a, an idea that's not as comfortable to live with. Yeah. You know, when they push back against the word feminism, which happens less now than it did when I first started teaching, yeah. but, you know, that I that I must hate men. And my response is always, especially my son, which hopefully they get the joke, because obviously I don't, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah they'll but be like, wow, she's serious. She's serious, she is, she yeah. She really lives um, this stuff. But, but, you know, I think it is that bringing, sometimes bringing, trying to bring maybe outdated humor, um, you know, around the serious issues yeah. that we do discuss in the classes. And yeah. it, makes, it makes me think, Anya, about, you know, a question I posed to you in preparation for this interview is, like, whether you're trying to illustrate some of these concepts that Beth is laying out there or investigate history, I mean, do you think about things in terms of people or events or ideas or probably some combination of the three or, or maybe I'm missing out on one of the categories of thought? No, I would say, I mean, all of those, all of those things and... Um, and also, um, maybe I would add to that sort of trends, um, okay. which are, you know, related to ideas, but also include like, you know, the actual on the ground results. Right? Sure. So, you know, changes in practice, changes in the law, mm-hmm. um, changes in what actually what actually happens. So, I mean, in my classes, I try to have, um, you know, a balance of those things. Right. That um, you you have to you have to have examples of things to ground it or it's just too abstract to make sense right yeah. i mean you can't just say you know there was this you know broad trend from you know larger families to smaller families and not back that up with something concrete mm-hmm. right um uh so statistics demonstrating that trend and um but you know at the same time if you only talk about you know statistics and dates that gets really dry and boring and and those changes are driven by ideas. Um, in the case of um, decreasing family size, um, new ideas about um, how child rearing should work and what the purpose of, of child rearing should be and, and how that um, sort of relates to family size. So the ideas are also really important. As a writer, I really like looking at individuals, obviously, sure. um, as in the as in the case of Breckenridge, because it sort of allows you to do everything <laughs> at once, right? So, um, so looking at an individual allows you to look at 
particular events, but from their vantage point, it allows you um, to look at their ideas. Um, but you know, as they express them, it allows you to look at uh, the trends um, in which they participate or contribute or you know make happen. Um, but all sort of from a particular person's perspective. And um, so, for instance, in the in the Breckenridge book, it means that instead of having uh, a separate study of woman suffrage and a separate study of immigrant welfare and a separate study of the anti-lynching movement and a separate study of the birth of the welfare state, and I could go on, but I won't, um, like all of those things and many more are part of Breckenridge's sure. life story. So it allows me to kind of talk across a lot of important developments from the vantage point of this one particular individual. Um, I don't, uh, I, in my women's history class, I sometimes will focus on an individual to, you know, sort of do that same thing, not though at the sort of not for an entire semester, not like, not like a, a, a whole book. Sure. Yeah. It, it makes me think too, like one of the, the things that are, occurred to me learning about Breckenridge was, I mean, she did so many things that like, what is the, in history, what's the path to distinction? Is it to be really renowned for one thing or a small number of things? And in her case, she's spread across so many issues. It's hard to say that she was an X or a Y or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to put her in a category. It is. And I think that that is actually one of the reasons that she had been largely forgotten is that, strangely, because she was a participant and a leader in so many different movements and you know, activities, all of the, the the books that are written about those particular movements and activities leave her out mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because she wasn't identified with just a one sure. thing. Um, I think that makes her really cool. I mean, when I first started my research, it was, I mean, it was such a revelation because it was like all of these things that I had been teaching about for, you know, by that point, like 15 years. So, you know, the rise of women's higher education and women's participation in uh, social reform movements and women's participation in the movement for women's suffrage and the welfare state and on and on. It was like, it was like a massive checklist. And every time I, you know, went into Breckenridge's papers, I was like, oh my gosh, she did that thing too. <laughs> right, right. She's Look. everywhere. <laughs> you know, she did, she like did all the things um, and exemplified all these trends that I'd been teaching about for you know, many, many years. So, yeah. so that was one of the things that I thought was really exciting about her. But I think it's also kind of why she got until now left out of history books because she doesn't fit neatly into a single category. And as you know, part of part of the a big part of the story is the University of Chicago. Yes, and you know that's where so much of her work was done and her academic training. Um, and I remember from our first conversation, we were talking about sort of the purpose of higher education, the purpose right. of a university. And I, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm paraphrasing you, Anya, but you said something along the lines of the University of Chicago, they viewed their mission as trying to solve society's problems. Yes, absolutely. Um, they would refer to the city of Chicago as a social laboratory right. in which they would sort of put their theories to work in trying to address like structural causes of poverty, for example, right? Yeah, so that I mean, was it seems their sort mission. Of, it, it, it seems a little at odds with what you think of the University of Chicago now, 
Perhaps, although you I mean you think at least in the sort of the business and economic space, you think of it as a more conservative institution, but mm-hmm. they might still have that sort of social utility outlook. I'm not sure. I think it depends on the particular department. Sure. But, um, at the time Breckenridge was there, which was kind of the uh, time period that was the birth of the social sciences, um, at that point, um, people didn't really draw hard lines between academia and advocacy or activism. They they regarded uh, academia as providing you the tools with which to engage in activism and to advocate for folks who um, were less able to advocate for themselves because they lacked that sure. privileged position. Yeah. yeah. And so I bring that up by way of kind of pivoting to what's happening here at the University of Montana and, and sea change in yeah. general. You know, we we launched sea change a year ago. Um, that's not to say it's a set of new ideas. I mean, these ideas have been pursued passionately by the two of you and many others in this community and beyond. Yet uh, we're trying to sort of make things more explicit. Mm-hmm. And um, what have you thought of this 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 initiative so far? I mean, let's take stock of where we're at, kind of a, a year in. Um, what do you think? Well, when I first so um, full honesty, and I think that that. Um, Kelly Webster knows this very well. <laughs> I think that a lot of us that have been doing this work for a long time on campus and in the community, we've had different, you know, initiatives or calls to sure. do things yeah, over yeah. the years. Um, and a few too many of them had been unfunded, underfunded, right. understaffed. So there's some cynicism as And narrative. so cynicism. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that I have um, really appreciated during the more than a year, because Kelly came to us, came to me really early on, mm-hmm. you, Sarah Hayden, and communication studies. And I mean, really a lot of the people that had been directors and co-directors of, of WGSS over the years um, for input ahead of time. And she has kept that, kept us in the conversations and central to the conversations yeah. um, as it's moved forward. And so not saying, let's do this this new thing, but let's let's elevate the things that are already being done, see how we can expand them, see how we can bring new people, new ideas, but ex- always expanding. And so that, that to me, um, I felt um, more promise and hope from, from just, just um, her focus on it, the things that have been said out of a main hall about it, the funding. Um, and, you know, we, we've been work. I've been working um, with Tobin Shearer in African American Studies to develop curriculum stuff. Right. And, um, you know, reaching out to the College of Business, which is how I met you for the first time, at least by computer screen. Um, and and then, you know, I email Kelly and say, um, Tobin and I are thinking about this new maybe three one-credit modules around this. Could this be something we tested with the cohort of students coming in with sea change? And her response is fast and yes, yes. and how can we help and how can we support wanting to model some of their classes or just have their students take the classes we're already offering. Um, And so it's that recognition of the work that a lot of people have been doing here for a long time instead of focused outward or saying we're going to do these things and never funding them. Um, And so this, I've, I've 
this has been a this has been a, a positive feeling um, mm-hmm. overall during this process and a and and a hopeful mm-hmm. one. Yeah, sure. Anya, do you share that hopefulness? Yeah, I, I do. And I would add to that that um, because uh, people who uh, had long-standing um, roles in women's gender and sexuality studies were brought into the conversation early on. I think that has really shaped the focus of the program to uh, sort of recognize uh, the importance of intersectionality, right? Um, and that it's not just about empowering women, but recognizing that different women have, you know, different challenges sure. to contend with depending on their you know, their other social identities and also being aware of, uh, you know, the ways in which um, gender discrimination um, affects people um, who may not identify as women, uh, but who are nonetheless being discriminated against on the basis of gender or on the basis of of sexual orientation. Um, So I think that was one of the one of the earliest meetings, I think, that we yeah. had that we talked through those issues um, so that it wasn't an afterthought. Yeah. Um, whereas, as I think Beth kind of indicated, I mean, certainly not just at UM. I mean, this is a nationwide phenomenon that, you know, the origins of women's studies tended to be uh, to kind of have blinders on um, where diversity among women were concerned, right? And to um, to kind of assume that white women's experiences somehow represented everyone's experiences, yeah, yeah. right? Um, and that was, yeah, I mean, that was a an oversight um, of uh, the feminists who were active in the 1970s that has since been corrected. But the great thing is because sea change was not, I mean, it's a new initiative, but because it was taking, it was learning from what had come before, um, the initiative was able to avoid those kind of oversights yeah, um, because of sort of paying attention to um, what we who are active in this area have have learned. Yeah, um, yeah the balance of your expertise and experience as scholars and teachers in this space. I mean, yeah. yeah we, had a, we had a meeting, it was probably last summer, it feels like a couple months ago, um, and, and Kelly made an effort to have students involved as well to know you know how are our students going to see this how are and and took very seriously the input of the of the student who came to the meeting um, and and actually made some changes about saying okay if we're going to have students doing internships if we're going to have um, the you know the older sea change students as mentors or grad students they have to be compensated not just with credits yep. but yeah. with money and that's I mean that's one of the things the students said this is all great but if you don't pay me I'm not doing this extra sure. I mean said it in a in in a more professional student professional way than I just did but I mean that was something that that then was you know built in as being important to the program was that we're not just putting more work on people to pull their own bootstraps up, but we're going to help. Mm-hmm. We're going to help pay them for doing that. Right. Um, for doing that work and 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 show that that work is worthy by by paying people right. to do it. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And also make those opportunities available to people with less financial resources. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because who can who can do an unpaid internship? It's someone whose school's paid for. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All these layers of how privilege manifests. Yeah. Um, exactly. So as we kind of look ahead, 
I mean, this this series has been a year, and it's sort of coming to a close. But Sea Change is certainly not. It's something that will live on as an initiative and live on, certainly embodied in your work and the work of others. Um, what sort of, I mean, are you looking for particular milestones in the near term, the long term? Like what, what's, what would be some markers of success that you are, that are out there as beacons that you might be working toward? Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I mean, we, we crossed one a few years ago, which was getting a major in yeah. women's gender and sexuality sure. studies as, as all of our paperwork said, the only one in the state and, and you have to drive fair way to get to one in Washington. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. And and you know also the the adding sexuality to our name because we already included as counting for our our minor um, any class that dealt with um, LGBTIQ plus issues and and but we heard from our students we we for ourselves we were not required to do this brought in an outside consultant yep. and our students said you know, this is where they come for those classes and to be able to add it to the name was, was really, really important. You know, going forward, um, I mean, we've, we, we have a, uh, you know, not maybe not compared to other majors, but for as small of a program as we is, we have a fair number of majors and minors. I mean, I have 19 in my capstone class this semester, which is way more than we used to have. Um, and um, for me going forward with sea changes to see both if we had more students, I mean, so not just self-serving, but more students in WGSS, but also the ideas of sea change and the ideas um, that we teach in our classes to be spread even farther across campus. Mm-hmm. And, and with sea change happening, with the centennial of the 19th Amendment um, and you know other initiatives on, on, on campus that are going on, when, when I've been reaching out to people like, Hey, should we, you know, develop a one credit class on this or, you know, what about this that that the response has been very quick and very enthusiastic um, across, you know, you know, from the College of Business, from the Innovation Factory, from of people going yeah, and from Sea Change saying absolutely, these are the kind of classes we want mm-hmm. and and to be drawing people in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we tend to be very humanities and sciences focused. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do we expand that out and say, you know, these are questions, you know, with with me too and things like that. And, and that these are these are questions that that anyone that's thinking about working in the U.S. might want to be yeah. <laughs> or anywhere or anywhere. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Might want to know something about. Yeah. Yeah, and building on yeah, and building on that idea of you know trying to sort of disseminate these ideas more broadly. Like, um, so a measure might be right that if we revise the general education requirements, and in the same way that we have a requirement that students um, take a class that's classified as non-Western, right, that they take a class that ex- that exposes them to um, ideas about studying the role of gender and sexuality in society, right? That that could be a general education requirement. Um, um, And is at other schools, actually. There are a fair number of schools that have. At some other schools. I I think a really um, great step in that direction is that um, uh, WGSS class, um, uh, it's our 200-level class, I think, is now required in... It's uh, the health and, health and human performance. They're, sure. they're community health students, and so we yep. we put um, more for us. I mean, we put somewhere between 150 and 200 students through that class every year. Yeah. Um, it's it's yeah, 
And that's been a great help because students come in and we have a low credit minor and a low credit major. They come and take this class and go, this would be great with my HHP degree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I can get it quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and mm -hmm. yeah, and you probably, if you're interested, you probably already taken something that counts and you may not know Mm -hmm. know it because you know might we have these small groups of classes but then they take a class under history with Anya a class in you know sociology with yeah, and then yeah absolutely yeah. so I, I don't want to necessarily draw you out on this too much Anya but you mentioned revising gen ed and, and uh -oh. maybe that's gonna be your next 10-year project and, <laughs> although hopefully it would be a lot quicker than that it yeah. needs to be yeah yeah um, well, that, that is probably not the project that I would want to dedicate the next um, die on the, the next hill. the next ten years to. No, but um, but you know I would say that that you know could be could be something that we'd look for. I yeah, think. Yeah, um, um, Tobin um, and I are looking at developing both an undergrad and a grad certificate, so that low kind of twelve credit. Sure. In um, we haven't settled on a name, but in social justice, so where they take classes across. Um, WGSS, African American Studies, Native American Studies, um, to have that to go along. Um, and so something like that could mm -hmm. be, you know, a stepping stone to say, look, there's students in this. Why, why isn't there a requirement that students take either, you know, intro to Native American Studies, intro, I mean, Tobin is so good at titles, um, Black Africa to Hip Hop, which used to be intro to African American <laughs> Um, studies or, you know, one of our intro classes, you know, as that kind of intersectional um, um, requirement if, mm -hmm. if, if, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of interesting options, important ideas and great people working at it. Great thanks to the two of you for this work, but for coming in and, and sort of explaining it to me who has not much conception of it. So I appreciate your patience with me and I appreciate your, your dedication to all the great work you do. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for doing this podcast. Yeah, and yeah. best of luck with the book. Uh, and are you going to go back out on another tour, you said at the beginning of the conversation? Uh, I, yes, I am. I'll be, I'll be back out on tour in uh, March. And I assume folks can get it here in town, Fact and Fiction or Campus Bookstore. What's, where can you get it? You into? know, that is an excellent question. Um, I'm not sure which local bookstores are carrying it. Um, probably because I've spent so much time out of town. Sure. Um, but uh, you can order it from the University of Illinois Press at a 30% discount uh, with the code UIPF19, um, which is awesome. And, uh, and the, it's also available on Google Books and Kindle um, uh, through Amazon. Super. Yeah. Well, great thanks to you both. And, um, yeah, we'll be talking more down the road. Awesome. Thank you so much, Thank you. Justin. All right, well, that's a wrap on this series, but certainly not on Sea Change. Get involved. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum, and interns Aspen Runkel and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally... 
you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at a new angle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag a new angle when you do. Thanks a lot and see you next time.